0: They've seen a hundred other people, the ones that aren't really deeply committed to the thing that that doesn't help. So the team of, you know, well, we've got two people and here's these three boxes with no pictures, but they kind of look like this. I'm like, just jump. You got to just jump. And if you're not that committed, I'm not that committed either.
1: Hi guys, this is Paul Gray, and today I'm here with Sonny Venderbeck. He's the co-founder of Satori Capital, a multi-strategy investment firm founded on the principles of conscious capitalism. Before founding Satori, Sonny co-founded and served as CEO of Data Return, a leading provider of managed services and utility compounding. Sonny, thank you so much for being here today. Happy to be here. Wonderful. Now, Sonny, tell me, is it true you're one of the youngest CEOs on NASDAQ?
0: That appears to be the case, yeah. When we went public in 99, I think I was still 27. Um, so it was, it was a, an interesting experience, to say the least.
1: That must have been amazing. And what lessons did you learn there that inspired you to start Satori?
0: You know, I think the the lessons, that, I learned a lot of lessons. But part of what inspired us to start Satori was the way that we saw the capital markets. Um, As as a consumer of capital, we saw this sort of systemic challenge that that a lot of the providers of capital didn't understand the sort of ground truth. So metaphorically, um, a real estate investor that's never actually done their own real estate project has a a limited set of information to work with. And so in, in our case, if you had never led an operating company, Um, you might have a limited perspective to work with. So that was one of the issues. Um, The second issue was time horizon. What we noticed as CEOs, my co-founder Randy was also a CEO, um, as well as he spent a good bit of time in the capital markets. This this time horizon issue is a real thing. And it's not just for, well, you know, day-to-day trading or this quarterly problem for public companies. Um, It's a real problem even in the alternative assets business where. if you might have a theoretical five-year time horizon because you've got this five years to deploy and five years to harvest, if you're going to own an asset for five years, your average duration of your mind is two and a half years. Right, right, just math. And and so when now your average duration is two and a half years, the decisions you make are different than if your lens is, "I, I own the asset. I'm just an owner, and it doesn't mean I don't sell. It just means... I'm an owner, and if there's a better owner of it for me, for any reason, including an economic reason, then sure, I can talk about selling. And so we saw these funny things happen around fund life, um, behavior in the very beginning of funds, behavior in the very end of funds, that all the way down in the bottom in the business, you go, is this creating business value or is it destroying it? What we saw was by and large the, the, the nuances of the way these funds worked weren't, it wasn't helping. Said another way, it was just drawing value and there was missed opportunity. And, and so that was true in our public markets experience as well, just on a tiny little time scale, you know, 90 days, which is an absurd timeline to think about a business as an investor. But as you know, you know, many public markets owners are sort of hitchhikers, they're there this week and, and off they go. Um, so certainly saw that in, in my experience day to day and a very dramatic difference, I guess, as an owner, and I was the largest owner of, of the company shares as well. I own um, almost a third of the business. So that made for some new dynamics as well, where the difference between the investors that really thought like, hey, I'm a part owner in this business and I'm a partner with Sonny and his team and what they're building. The way we interacted was completely different. The priorities they had were different. They were asking me things about like, how's the business doing? Um, the, the temporary hitchhikers, they just want to know how's the stock doing, right? Yeah. They're just getting in the car for a little ride and, and off they went. It's a very different experience there. Um, and then here's, here's the last piece um, that actually ties the first two together. And it was this, we, we call it conscious capitalism now. We didn't have words for it at, at the time. Um, but my experience is many of the investors didn't appreciate or care about the things that were important to the business, that that the sort of entire lens for decision-making was through a financial lens. Right. So the only care was the shareholder. My own wiring was much more like, well, what if we just have happy customers and be a best place to work and be good partners with our suppliers and, and so on and so forth. If I get those things right, the shareholder piece is gonna work out. Like where's the company that um, customers love it and people love to work there that's not also ultimately delivering great outcomes for shareholders. And so it felt backwards. It was like, hey, we're focusing on this lagging thing. That's a result of all of the important things. And so the conversations I wanted to have about, here's how we have a you know, nuance in the culture that's allowing us to attract talent that our competitors can't get. No one wants to care about that, no one cares instead they'd want to talk about sort of very near term well you know you got 50 basis points in margin change you know over this quarter and so we're able to look at all of these things together both um experience as a public company ceo and then experience in the private capital markets as well and they all kind of told the same story hey we're missing these three things Mm -hmm. we're missing the operator's perspective we're missing long-term perspective um, and we're missing this idea that not everything that matters in long-term value creation and business fits in Excel, which we now call conscious capitalism. So, so I think as it relates to this business, those are the lessons learned. I have lots of others, but those are the ones that are sort of drove the generation of this business.
1: I can imagine. I'm just curious, you know, what does Satori mean? how did you come up with that name?
0: Yeah. So um, how we came up with the name was, it was a long journey. We spent about a year and a half looking for a name. Um, which seems like an interminably long time, but get off the dime. Can you guys please make a decision and let's move on? This is life's work with this business. So our assumption was, hey, this is what we're going to do for the rest of our, our, our business life. We may have a 40-year time horizon. We were pretty young when we started Satori. I think I was 35 and Randy may have been 33. So we, said, Look, we got plenty of time. We'll just get there eventually. And so we went back and forth over a zillion names and and one day randy was reading a book and i i wish i could remember the name of the book um, he said hey i think i have it there's this word satori I'm like what does it mean and it's it the best way i have to describe it is it, it's a japanese word that means the experience or the feeling at the moment of enlightenment at the moment of aha um, so it's the, the embodiment of the light bulb moment. It's not the moment itself. It's like, what was that experience like? He sent that to me in an email. I can still see the email and I'm like, great, we're done. That's the one.
1: Oh, that's amazing. We got our friend in an email
0: then. Yeah, that's a great, I, I bet I, I have it around somewhere.
1: Wonderful. So I would imagine the aha moment was creating a firm that revolves around conscious capitalism. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, it, it, the firm itself was designed to be the aha moment. So so here's the other piece of this. Part of the energy to start this, um, like I can go get on stage and give you a big speech about here's a bunch of data that proves you should change what you're doing. Maybe you should care about these other things and sort of berate you from the stage. No one's gonna change anything. That's not how it actually works. There's no amount of white papers or books I can write or speeches I can give to say, hey, you're missing opportunity here. The way you really do it is you go do the work. You go make the investments. You show the way. You figure out. We've had to figure out a lot of stuff along the way. Like we're like, well, how do you measure that? But that's a whole. That's an entire interview in and of itself to say, like, how do you actually figure this stuff out? Um, but it's not as simple as picking up a couple of metrics and and going on. It's 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 actually relatively complex. Interesting. Um, yeah. So the point was, if we can be a leading light. If we can, instead of tell people about the way, let's show them the way let's just go do the work and let's let our results speak for themselves. And if somebody wants to know, well, how did you get that? I'm happy to share all the secret sauce. I'll tell you everything we do and I hope you do it. So, so our purpose at Satori, um, our North star is to create fund and inspire businesses that elevate humanity. So pretty wide scope there. And here's the, the funny part is here's what that actually means. If we can get our competitors to be more successful by adopting our practices, we want, we'll want we know that our work is done when someday it'll be, well, everybody does that. Of course, you have a long-term perspective. Right. All firms do that. You're crazy if you don't. Like When that happens, okay, we, we don't have to do anything anymore.
1: Right. You guys are paving the way, so to speak. And that's amazing. You know, I'm also curious to know, Sonny, in your experience, how has the LP community treated um, conscious capitalism from the early start? Have they become more open to it as opposed to before?
0: Um, so I got this little flat spot on my head right here. Um, Cause there's a couple of 30 year olds from Texas. We would get the pat. We get the pat. It's like, Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> it, it was too foreign for a really long time. Sure. Um, it, it, our, our way of understanding the systems and so forth, it just didn't resonate. And look, first-time fund is is brutal. It just is its own thing. Um, it's at least as hard as starting a new business. And it's probably more like starting a new business to do a brand new thing no one's ever heard of.
1: Well, I don't want to ask you about in that. Our case. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I definitely want to ask you about that because not only did you start one successful business, he started two. And that's unheard of by many measures. So I definitely want to pick your brain about that a little bit.
0: We'll hit that. Um, uh, so what we found is we would go talk to people about what we were doing and they, they might've understood it intellectually, but they didn't really get it viscer- viscerally. They, they didn't buy our argument effectively. They didn't see it and go, God, that's an interesting insight. Here's some money. Right. Um, uh, And then we were talking to our CEO friends, right? Because we were both CEOs prior to this. And um, Randy was also an investor for a large part of his career. And our CEO friends would say things like, well, where were you when I sold my business? Or we would tell them about this long-term time horizon thing. Say, look, I don't know when I'm going to sell it. I don't, that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to make a great business. Now, the paradox is people ask, oh, well, what's your exit strategy? My exit strategy is have an awesome business. It's growing with a bunch of cash flow. Or in the case of our funds that, you know, where we make fund investments, the, the fund analogy for that. Our CEO friends heard the story and they didn't lean back and go, oh, hang on a minute. They'd lean forward in their chair. And I said, where were you? And wow, that's interesting. And that's how I ran my business. And we well, you know our family sold our business for $500 million. And that sounds a lot like how we did it over and over and over again. And then they would start to ask, well, can we invest? And we're like, Sure. Love to have you. Uh, And so we, as as good entrepreneurs, right, you target a certain customer segment, and that customer segment doesn't like you and thinks you're crazy. And you go talk to other potential customers, and they love what makes you different. Because that's what we experienced. It wasn't that they would tolerate our differences. It's that they appreciated them, and it made them excited. So, okay, we found our segment. And so for the next decade, we just spend our time speaking to that segment. Because they understand what we're trying to do at a visceral level and why it works at a visceral level. Because their own life experience as CEOs, um, or or at least their family experience of the company, the family owned for 20 years or 50 years, um, very much mirrors what we're saying to them.
1: Exactly. But Sonny, tell me, if I'm a family owned business, or if I'm the first time founder, I'm about to sell my business. Why would I go to Satori as opposed to the average private equity firm? What is the advantage there?
0: Yeah, so it comes in a couple of places. Um, and I will start with, if you're going to throw the keys and your only measure of success is money, we're probably not going to be a very good fit there. Right. We tend to be a really good fit when people are going to stay around, when they want to partner. So, so very much like the, um, hey, just send me a check, but leave me alone crowd. Mm-hmm. That's not for us. Look, The fun part is not the check writing and the check getting. Like that's, it's part of our business. It's what we do. We're like, oh, look, we had an exit. That was awesome. We made a lot of money. The celebratory moments here are stuff like this. So so one of our portfolio companies takes what's roughly the bottom 3% of high school students who they're going to drop out. Hmm. They are not going to graduate high school. Like what are your prospects in America if you're not, if you don't graduate high school? Yeah. They're not very good. So the, the entire business, every story inside the business is about trying to help this part of the world maybe get through high school and have a shot at being prosperous, enjoying their work, having a good life, like all of the things that that, that would entail. And occasionally you pick up stories like, hey, here's this person that went to our school seven years ago, just got accepted to Harvard Medical School like unbelievable. And and we're not, this is, this is a commercial venture. Like, let's not be confused. We're not doing it for the stories. Like we, we need to make money. We're, we're right. in the business of um, generating returns, but to do it in a way where you can see value creation out in the world, far away like that. Like, how cool is that? So the moments when we're able to actually be partners with our leadership teams and really help doesn't mean we want to run the place. Like, We have to be very careful about trying to ever telling somebody what to do. But because most of our team has been CEOs or COOs, we've generally got some perspective that can be useful. And we often have had an experience, positive or negative. Um, Like if you want to know how to not expand into the UK, Mm -hmm. I can tell you a way to do it and fail horribly. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm not good at that. The point is like, I've got some lessons learned there about in in our case, it was a significant underinvesting. Like don't treat the UK like a 51st state. It, it, you'll fail. Now, seems obvious but at the time it wasn't. So, so the point being, if you're looking for a partner, we can be a great fit. If you care about what happens the day after close, we can be a great fit. And I think it's a really important binary outcome. The, the owners that care about what does this mean for my employees, what does this mean for my customers, what happens to my existing leadership team, Maybe how can I be a better leader? A lot of the investments we make, um, the CEO is not going anywhere. They may they have a significant liquidity event, but their objective in the transaction is, yes, I want to have a liquidity event. And I have a vision for this business, but I actually need some help. There's a lot of stuff that has to happen between here and there. And they believe that A, we can actually help and B, we're values aligned. Because right? that's the other piece in here. If you care about the things we care about, we can be an extraordinary partner. Like if you want somebody to show up, ask you about the financials, pick out you about why did AP increase by eight point seven percent, it's actually kind of funny because we'll we'll occasionally participate in in a banked process with you know management meetings and all of that and we'll go in and we're asking questions about customers and strategy and competitors and culture and all of these kinds of things mm. and and it's interesting to hear feedback from these leadership teams they're like, you didn't ask us about these 87 questions we had prepared about in the financials. We're like, no, we'll, we'll get to that. Like we have to talk about that, but when we're together, let's talk about the business. So if they're looking for a partner and if they care about what happens after the, the day after close, we're a great fit. You know, I ended up writing a book about this stuff Absolutely. called selling without selling out how to sell your business without selling your soul. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem here is so many owners will only do this one time in their life and it's an irrevocable decision mm-hmm. like you can get a tattoo removed you can't unsell a business
1: exactly
0: right. and so it's it's a one-way decision that you usually get to do one time in your life i've done it a few times and i, I actually there are some things i wish someone would have told me that was the essence of why i wrote the book and the first one is um, you hear about things like, "Well, how do I get more value for my business?" Like, well, you got to figure out what more value means. What what does value value is not a euphemism for money. Value means value, and money is part of that.
1: Right.
0: We had somebody try to buy one of our portfolio companies once, and they didn't Google around much. I guess they didn't look and see, like, "Hey, who are these people?" So I show up in this meeting, and I just start asking dangerous questions, like. Yep. Hey, why do you wanna buy this? Well, you know, we think there's too much capacity in the industry. Huh, all right, well, we you, you think you'll do with the leadership team? I'm like, well, you know, we got plenty of people. We don't need any of them really. I'm, all right, like, hey, you know, you've got another um, plant, you know, within a couple hundred miles of ours. Like, what are you thinking about the integration and like how all that's gonna work? Just curious about that. And they're like, yeah, we have the other plant. We'll probably just shut it down. you just told me you're literally gonna fire everybody when I sell it to you. Exactly. Like, no, I'm out. I'm never talking to you. I'm never doing that deal. It doesn't matter.
1: Right.
0: Now the, the paradox there is, well, yeah, well, they would have paid a lot and da da da. The, I, I gotta be careful about talking about actual returns. Um, that the outcome on that business was tied for second best investment we've ever made. And we didn't sell it to those Yahoo's who were going to dismantle it. Beautiful. And in fact, the people we sold it to, the family still works there. It's like one of our ways to think about like, okay, well, what next? The family that was second and third generation mm-hmm. when we were investors, second generation retired when we exited. Third generation still works at the acquirer. That's is, okay, we might've found a good spot. So these can be one-way decisions. If you figure out what you care about, you'll actually figure out who the best buyer is.
1: Amazing. Very nice. You know, it's funny, I speak to first-time founders all the time, and one of their biggest concerns is what's going to happen to their employees after they sell the company. So it's quite interesting to hear you bring that up. I'm also curious to know, you know, if you look over the course of history, companies that have implemented conscious capitalism into their business practices, how have they fared as opposed to other companies? What has their performance been like?
0: Yeah, so so the data set shows pretty consistent outperformance. Um, I think firms of endearment data is probably one of the very best Mm -hmm. long-term looks. And last time I checked in on it, and and these are sort of public company scale data sets, but it's useful because everybody knows the companies. Uh, something like a 10X outperformance over S&P. And here's an interesting sort of related data point. So, you know, Fortune does a best place to work analysis every year. And somebody has been tracking the performance of those companies, the stock performance of those companies over a very long period of time. And guess what? The Fortune best place to work consistently and persistently outperformed the S&P 500. It's incredible. It's something like 2x the return now at this point. It's absolutely extraordinary. So the, the logic is, look, if I just be a better culture, I'm getting some measure of outperformance if I can take the idea of I care about my employees and I'm actually going to try to make people fulfilled in their work and enjoy the journey as much as one can with, with their vocation. What if I extended that to my customer mm-hmm. and my customer had the same experience? And what if my suppliers had the same experience? And, you know, I had this, this happened to me, where we had great outcomes with our customers and great outcomes with our employees, but I had the supplier thing like wasn't on my radar. They were through purchasing and purchasing reported to the CFO and he had a big stick. Like he was coming with the margin stick to just, just yep. hammer. Like the idea of a partnership was nowhere and it was not on my radar. And I don't remember how, but one day, like somebody effectively posed the question, like God, we're brutal to these suppliers? <laughs> but what if we treated them like we treated our employees and actually cared about them and tried to be in a partnership with them and so on and so forth? Um, and I'll save all the, the sub stories, but, but it worked. And so the, this idea of, can I be in a partnership with each one of my stakeholders? Mm-hmm. And, and for a definition of stakeholders, by the way, just simply look at who cares about the company. If the company were gone tomorrow, who would care? Right. And so you get the basic ones like customers and employees, often the community, Um, Right, think about, particularly in a small town, if you're the largest employer in a small town, Mm -hmm. how much does that community care about this company? A lot, like it it defines the future of of the entire community. And so that's the essence of the idea is is just care about these various stakeholders. And if you can just do that, the rest of it works out. But it means you may have to make some long-term decisions over some short-term decisions. And I'll, I'll give you an example. When should you enforce the spirit of the contract versus the letter of the contract with the customer? It's a complicated question. It's easy to have sort of binary: well, always the spirit, well, always the letter. Um, as you might imagine, a conscious capitalist is going to have a heavy bias towards the spirit of the contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the contract says you have to pay me X, Y, Z, but that wasn't, neither of us meant that. Why would I hold you to that? It makes no sense. Some people would say well, they were grown ups and they had attorneys and they signed the contract and you know, paint it. Our view is the short-term hit versus the long-term value creation with that customer, especially Mm -hmm. if the conversation is, hey, we know the contract says this, that's not fair, nor was it the spirit of the deal we had when we entered into this. So I'm not gonna enforce that on you. You think that buys some goodwill? Mm -hmm. Like, this, and this is the thing people forget on the time horizon. Like the business cycle is a real thing. Yep. It ebbs, it flows balance of power between supplier and company flows, balance of mm-hmm. power between LPs and GPs changes all the time, right? Just fast forward three years and, and who's chasing who may change dramatically. And that's, that's true. true in customer relationships, watch it now in employees. So, so one of our uh, priorities across all of our, our businesses is to be a best place to work. So we've got this war for talent going on right now, right? You've got all these unfilled jobs in every industry, et cetera, et cetera. Are investments where they've put effort on being a best place to work? How do you think they're faring versus the ones that
1: didn't care? Probably a lot better, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, they're doing a lot better because people love to work there. And sometimes it's the smallest thing. We, We had a business where a significant portion of the employee base Has to wear work boots, steel-toe work boots every day, and the best ones you can buy are about 300 bucks to buy them, which is is probably by and large not a good um, purchase for them to make at their income level. Or if it's not a good one, it's a tough one. You're like, "Mm, that's a little more than I want to spend on work boots. Well, we looked at it and said, hey, look, this if they're going to be more comfortable team's going to appreciate it. It costs $300 a piece. Every, you know what? Everybody that's been here a year, you're getting the best steel toe work, which you can buy in the market. It's just part of working here. Mm-hmm. See, on one hand you go, that was just a straight expense. Like that went straight to the P and L with no offset anywhere. Mm-hmm. And our view is you put a little time on that and watch what happens because now every employee at every competitor began to ask the question, why doesn't my company care about me right they're getting them over there why don't i get and then they start to ask well maybe i should go over there the single biggest constraint to growth in this company was being able to hire new team members Mm. and it changed the outcome so it's just this longer term lens and, and that's why i put those three things together the longer term lens and conscious capitalism are deeply linked Because as soon as you start to take a longer perspective, things like spear the deal, what's the experience as an employee, do my customers trust me? Those kinds of questions become very important. Your horizon's 18 months or two years, they don't matter at all.
1: Right. What happens when you look at some of those companies that didn't fare out so well? So I'm thinking about the WorldCom's, the Enron's. Had they instituted conscious capitalism and put their stakeholders first, their customers, their employers, their vendors, do you think they would still be around today?
0: You know, those are those are complicated um, and simple all at the same time. I'm gonna give you the simple version of it. Like one of the things you're going ask is like, how do you figure out if somebody's a conscious capitalist? And, and we think there's a lot of unconscious conscious capitalists out there in the world. They don't use the words, we just look for the behavior.
1: Right.
0: An origin moment in the behavior is look at the leadership team and figure out who they care about. And if you can figure out who they care about, you can probably predict long-term outcomes. So the paradox is, could Enron have implemented conscious capitalism? Mm -hmm. If the leadership team only cares about getting paid and they're willing to commit fraud to do it, no, because you can't, this is not a thing that you can delegate. You can't call up your VP of talent and go, we need some of this conscious capitalism stuff. Make it so. That's not how it works, right? This is very much a, you have to start at the top. And it almost makes it worse. If the leadership team doesn't embody it, but runs around talking about it, you just create a bunch of skepticism. Right. And and to be clear, though, I will never suggest any one of these companies are perfect, nor will I suggest I'm perfect. I'm sure I do something every day that's inconsistent with the principles. Uh, But the other principle is better every day. Right. If you're if you're on the track and you go, oh, okay, I learned from that. I'm not going to do that anymore. That makes a real difference. So could they have done it? Yes, but it would have required an internal transformation of the people leading those businesses first.
1: Right. Wonderful. Well, you know, another question that comes to mind then is someone who has built not one but two successful teams, what measures do you take in attracting and recruiting the best talent are there any tricks of the trade that you could share with some of the emerging managers or 1st time founders here
0: yeah you know i don't know if i'd put them as tricks of the trade because tricks are usually kind of easy mm. um and this stuff's hard Do a couple of things though because it's not about the bagels right it's not about the lunches and it's not about the ba- and everybody we feed everybody and it's, that's great and and they care about it a lot but that's actually not the difference maker like the, the actual starting place on this is to care. Like if you're building the team, you actually have to care about them as people. Right. Um, you know, I had, we had somebody on our team that came to me for some advice. Um, and effectively the advice was, look, I've got some, some friends from, I don't remember if it was B-School or, or what have you, that are about to start a fund. And I'm thinking about doing it. Oh. And my, the real advice for him was, you know what, you should go do this. Like he didn't have any responsibilities in life other than feeding himself, right? So so he, he could take economic risk of maybe this thing doesn't work. Maybe it just doesn't go. Um, it let him move to back to his hometown, which he wanted to move. He was deeply qualified to hold the role he was gonna hold there, et cetera. Like all of the things lined up, but it meant I was gonna lose a resource on the team. What do I do? Am I self-centered and say, don't do this. Mm-hmm. Or do I tell them the truth? If you're ever going to do this, there will never be a better time. You already know these people. You're really well qualified for it. And you're, you're given where you are in your life. You're able to take this risk safely. Mm-hmm. I think you should go do this. And I, I, I that's not the trick. The trick is I actually cared. Right. About him. Uh, you know, another piece, and again, and this is difficult work on something that matters. So I'm going to give you an, an example here that may bring it to light. So, so we've got a business called Excel. It's in, it's in our alpha business. And what Excel effectively does is it helps managers of capital who are really good at investing, but investing and the business of investing are not the same thing. So we'll take these established managers that aren't very big, that are absolutely brilliant investors. And our role is to invest in them and both as an LP and as a GP to make sure there's plenty of capital in the management company and to actually help, to actually be partners and help them grow and scale their business. Because there's a lot of stuff, but besides, hey, I made a good trade and look at my PNL. there's a lot in this business. I'm, I'm sure other speakers have talked about it, that are different skill sets and require a different mindset. And it's business building. At it's, at its essence, it's business building. So one of the questions we ask them is, why did you start this? because if you just started to get paid mm-hmm. like well you know look I saw this trade and there was some arbitrage and so I saw an opportunity to make some money we tend to not back those
1: right
0: and if you think about why would someone go and work at that company to make money exactly that's it and and I'm that's okay but it's not great mm-hmm. if instead you're trying to build something, whatever it is that that means to you. I can't tell you what you have to go do yourself. You heard it from me earlier in our case, to create fund, and inspire businesses that elevate humanity. People wanna come work on that. That doesn't mean we don't have to build models and do trades and all of the things that everyone has to do, but we're doing it in a direction and we're doing it for a reason. And and I'll give you an an example. We had one of our our managers has been on the platform now that's been, been very successful when they came to us, they've been in business I don't know, three, four years, had something like 25 million of AUM. Mm-hmm. Now, their track record was extraordinary. Like, you look at their returns and their sharp ratio, or, or even more importantly, Sortino, and go, like, how'd they do it? They were killing it. But it was just tiny little thing. The interesting part of this story was what they did to keep the lights on, what they were willing to do to be in business. And this goes back to your question about, you know what have you learned from doing this multiple times? They were willing to do anything. At the same time they're running this business, nights and weekends, they're doing turnarounds on restaurants because they just happened to have that skill. And so they were using that to buy groceries. Like we, we got, there's just not much to go around when you've got 25 million of AUM. And so they were supplementing their income by turning around restaurants, why? Because nothing was going to stop them from building that business. They were willing to do anything. Right. And there are some managers, and I understand it. Look, you get a PM at a big fund making a lot of money, says, well, maybe I could make some more. I'm going to go out on my own. If I can raise 200 million at open, so when I open the doors, I have 200 million, I'll do it. Otherwise, I'm staying here. Exactly. This stuff's harder than people realize, way harder. And in fact, even harder than I realized. I thought, oh, well, you know, look, I've done this before. We did this hypergrowth business. It was crazy. We doubled headcount every, I think every 120 days, we doubled headcount for three and a half years. Wow. It was, it was completely, it was an impossible task and we did it anyway. And I'm like, I got this. I know how to do this. Mm-hmm. And you go to do number two and you're like, sometimes it's even harder because you know what comes next. Mm-hmm. Like in the old when the thing that came next was novel and you're surprised. You're like, oh, this next hard part shows up now. When you know it's coming, you're like, we just got through this. And so you get a PM that's been making $5 bucks a year, and now he's under his own desk plugging in a phone because they haven't found their IT support yet. And it's just stuff you got to deal with. You're know, like, how did I end up here? I'm, I'm digging, trying to hook up phones. And, and that's the easy stuff. There's a bunch of really hard stuff. And you have to be able to hold the, how am I going to run the business and build the business in your head at the same time as how am I going to be a great investor? at the same time is, how am I going to get any capital to do this? So this this grit thing is a very real thing. It's very hard. It's hard to do any business. And a new investment business is like any other. It's very, very hard. So here's the point, though. The culture at the firms who had those kinds of journeys, who we're willing to build it no matter what it took. And maybe we're building something that was important to them. They were trying to bring a new thing. They had some something that was important that they cared about. They get a different cut at talent than people that are just, look, I'm just gonna bid the more, bid the most, and I'm gonna pay the most for talent. Right. Like we we had the talent available to a small manager in North Carolina. This was pre-COVID, by the way. Now everybody's like, hey. I'm okay getting out of the city, North Carolina sounds great, et cetera. This was, it was craziness to leave. Why would you leave the city? Like, um, but this company, like the talent available to them was extraordinary because they were different and they cared about more than just sort of short-term P&L and what they were gonna do. And so the leadership team, and this is where the last piece comes in, the people that are attracted to that Mm -hmm. behave differently too. Are the people that just show up for a paycheck The way they make sense of the world is just different than ones that show up and go, I want to build something. Correct. Right? Their priorities are different. And so you get actually get access to a different talent pool
1: as a result of that. Sure, that's amazing. You know, as I told you before, we had Anthony Scaramucci on the show recently. And one of the things he was speaking about is he looks for that grit as well. Or as he said, the X factor, those guys and girls that could outperform even when times are tough, not relatively just easy. So it's interesting to hear you say that as well. And I'm also curious to know, Sonny, out of all the managers that you have spoken to in the past, what were some of the most common mistakes that you saw in their their funds? There was probably many.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm sort of thinking about how to be clear on this. A couple of things come to mind in, in no particular order. One, you have to actually be able to articulate your edge. You may know it's the best thing in the world, but if, if I just got like, how are you doing this? Like, what's and so, and I don't mean the, the canned edge, because like everybody's got a canned edge. You can, at this point, it's almost paint by numbers to make a presentation because there's so many of them floating out there, and you, you have the edge page and you have the process page. And like, get when you go to get under the edge page, you go, yeah, but the last four, you know, hedge funds that came through here, credit funds said the same thing. Right what's really the edge, like you're really telling me that you're going to be able to out analyze, you know, fundamentals, versus the 10,000 other people that are sure they're going to out analyze fundamentals. And maybe they're like, yeah, actually, I can, because I have a lens into Korea that no one else has, I grew up there. And this entire network of suppliers, I went to school with, and I actually understand how this works on the ground. I made that up, by the way, it's not one of our funds, but it's, it's, you gotta actually have a real edge and be able to explain how you're gonna get a different result versus everyone else. Like it, inherently, the world trends toward average and everybody says they're gonna be above average. Okay, why should I believe that? Now, obviously, you've got, you know, track record helps, right? When you go, look, here's three years of outperforming, um, being able to explain why you had outperformance is important. So, and so sometimes it's key insights about specific names. You go, We saw a thing here that no one else could see and, and, and unpack it. So I I do think the case studies can be really enlightening. If you really understand your edge, we we had one of our managers had a long Facebook position for, for quite some time. Like it had become a core position for them, which, which wasn't a hard thing to do. You know, the Fang thing just sort of worked. So as an example, we see a manager that has Fang in their portfolio we want to dig into that like did you just get on a ride and it was really beta but here's the point there was a moment i forget what happened there was some drama that happened at facebook the stock shocked down like 30 percent you can imagine you know we're on the phone with them we're like oh my god you still have this huge long position and they're like no we shorted it like four days ago what do you mean and they just they they knew the company well enough and the ecosystem and all these pieces that were moving around. They saw some data point over here that they understood what it really meant, mm-hmm. and that data point not only they didn't well we trimmed our position, well we took the position off. They were able to get a hundred percent convicted in the opposite direction because they actually had a deep understanding of like how that business created money, how it grew, how people thought about value, etc. So I've gone a little long on this, but the you should be able to explain in detail how you create value. And if you can't figure your story out, you're going to have a tough road. You can't just post, go, look at these returns. People are like, why'd you get them? And you're like, I don't really know. We kind of trade fundamentals. It's a whole guy. Quantumentals was the new thing for a while. So was like, oh, we're a quantum shop. What, in the, what does that mean? And so, so that's one. Mm-hmm. The second piece is, it actually ties back to the grid it's the not being able to do whatever it takes that like you, you, where they're not willing to put everything else aside and go, if something's going to help me build a bigger business and a better business, I'm just going to do it. Right. And so a little bit of the example I gave, you know, occasionally we'll see people come through and, and we generally at this point, we don't really do seed um, funding in, in the hedge or credit fund world. We want somebody to have established themselves in business for a while you know, well, I'm going to do this if I raise a hundred million. I don't, that's not endearing. Like, and I don't think just for us, because that's like, this is a big old call option. Like effectively what you're saying is, yeah, you know, look, if it doesn't go well, I'm just going to keep my day job. Like that doesn't engender trust in somebody who's about to give you, you know, 20 or 50 or hundred million dollars. Um, so the people that write, you know, decent sized checks in the hedge funds, Like they've seen a hundred other people, the ones that aren't really deeply committed to the thing that, that doesn't help. So the team of, you know, well, we've got two people and here's these three boxes with no pictures, but they kind of look like this. I'm like, just jump. You got to just jump. And if you're not that committed, I'm not that committed either.
1: Mm. Can't have a plan B. Right. And then encourage people to come in with you. Yeah. Yeah. I was speaking with Mitch Eccles, the president of the Hedge Fund Association recently. And that was one of the things that he noticed for a lot of managers is that they're really good at the investing component, but sometimes they forget about the business component, the operations, the marketing and sales. So it's funny to hear you say that a lot of people really can't speak about their returns. They can't speak about the companies, so.
0: And look, that one, the, the business piece, if you remember back to the beginning of the conversation, one of the sort of origin of Satori was there's value in if you're going to make investments, having been on the other side of the table in that kind of investment. Right. So if you look in our team, you'll see, you know, James Hathaway, who leads that business day to day. He started at a hedge fund that had 28 million of AUM, hmm. and he left when it had about two billion. He lived it. He saw it every day. He saw that business building. He's been on the other side of all of the stuff that really happens through these growth cycles. My partner Randy. You know, I think he was at his old firm from about three hundred million to about three billion. So he's seen it. He's actually done the work. So it's it's one thing to sort of sit in a board meeting or a partner meeting and throw rocks at somebody and go, "Well, you should just raise revenues and lower costs." It's entirely another thing to say, hmm, "You know, here's what we saw when we started to delegate trades to PMs that we had to do because we couldn't scale if we didn't do it." But we ran into this new problem. Right. That's a real issue. Or hey, by the way, don't forget about this compliance issue that shows up, like do it now and get used to it and get ready for it. Don't kick the can on this. They're like, ah, it's compliance stuff. It's not important. We're like, no, this stuff is actually seriously important. And as you get any scale, real investors are going to care about where do you clear your trades and where's custody done? People care, you know, if you show up and you trade on IB, is not going to, you should fix that now. Fix it right now. There are lots of great alternatives. Fix it now. Like, but it's so expensive. It yeah, but you're building a business. Um, so the point here is that team has also had the experience of being on the other side of the table, being a principal investor in these kinds of funds. And so they can also have a lot of empathy. They right. sat in a chair and went, golly, we only have like 30 million of AUM. Like, how are we going to make this work? But it also means that they can give relevant advice on the business dimension of it because they've been down that path before.
1: Exactly. Well, you know, moving the conversation to where we are currently in the market, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that regard. So I'm sure you saw Dr. Michael Burry's recent tweet that insinuated that we're perhaps in the largest bubble ever in history. And he said that's true of all asset classes. He's predicting a large crash, perhaps larger than what we've previously seen. And I was just curious to get your thoughts on that. And um, what do you think?
0: Yeah. You know, in 2015, it was really clear that everything was terribly overheated and Mm -hmm. it was getting about time for a crash. Still, still looking at my watch, waiting, like, you know, that it particularly is a like a mega macro conversation. It gets so ridiculously complicated to try to unpack that. You might be able to speak to specific asset classes and and even subcategories of specific asset classes where you go, well, this makes no sense. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Because the downstream of that is, okay, cool. A crash is coming. We're going to buy everything. Hmm. Would you rather own a office building in San Francisco today or Dallas?
1: It's hard to say. I've been to both places, but uh, i leaning towards Texas.
0: Yeah, the demographics would suggest you've got a nice tailwind in Texas and the cost in Texas is significantly lower than the cost in San Francisco. And the marginal consumer of office space can create a lot of change in price. Mm-hmm. And historically, the stuff on the coast had been much higher priced as well. To should be clear. I'm not a real estate expert. I'm just using this as, as an example. Probably better off being long real estate in Dallas than in San Francisco because, People are moving here and people are leaving there, and the stuff you're buying here is cheaper than what you're buying there. Right. So if you were to say, you know, geographically, this spot is in a bubble, okay, that might be true. And it might be supported by the the, the rents available to you make the actual ownership of it that there's no value left, right? All you get is the illiquidity premium and you're not actually picking up any investment returns. But it's a really hard question and it gets more complicated, you know. Arguably 10, 15 years ago, money wasn't nearly as portable across geographies as it, as it is today. Right. It, you didn't see an investor in Kuwait put a billion dollars into US assets. There was a lot of friction. It was hard. It wasn't now. Like if, if you're in Botswana and you want to deploy capital in the United States, you just do it. Right. So It's a little bit like the, the chicken little currency crowd. And there are lots of people that go, oh, you don't get it, and you're missing it. OK, fine. Um, you, may, you may be right. Time will tell. It, The US dollar has an interesting place in the world. Um, and there are certainly headwinds for the value of the US dollar. Right. My conclusion is that all of the headwinds everywhere else are, by and large, the same, if not worse. And we've got some tailwinds going for us, too. like buying things in the United States by and large is a store of value. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I, I've learned and it, it took me a little while to get my head around it. Cause I'm not a store of value investor. I, I like to buy things that generate income and, and cash and so for them to sit there and store value. There are a lot of people globally that don't want to own assets in the currency they're in. They'd like to own them in U S dollars. Exactly. Like, would you rather own yen denominated assets, Euro denominated assets or U S dollar denominated assets?
1: US dollar easily.
0: So so some of the sort of currency concerns and, and so forth, to me, they're less pressing. One, one of my experiences, and I think I see this more in the private asset market than because I, I just can't see it in the public asset market. Back to the point, the whole world wants to buy US assets. Mm-hmm. Does that create pressure on a company that has a billion dollars of revenue that's private, that's profitable on the price of that? Absolutely, it does. Because if you're if you're trying to convert from a volatile peso to on a relative basis, a stable us dollar, that's a store of value buy. Yep. So yeah, you're only going to make 8% on it, but that's not even what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. You're just trying to like secure your asset base and like have it not dwindle. So as long as you beat inflation, that's better than owning, you know, peso denominated assets. I don't, I'm not a macroeconomist. I'm not a microeconomist. But those things are on my mind, say, to make sweep, sweeping proclamations about everything. Um, when there's no, and this is the final point on this, when there's no alternative to buy. Mm-hmm. It's not like a relative, it's gone crazy. It's like, okay, well, if everything's more expensive, you go, okay, what am I going to buy? I'm going to sit on cash. And there is a great case to pay for the call option because this is effectively what you're doing if you sit on a bunch of cash. Like personally, I I actually do that. I pay for the call option of liquidity um, because there may be an opportunity in the future to buy assets inexpensively. Now the carrying cost of that's pretty high because the alternative use of that cash, as we sort of know what that looks like. And, And so we see as an example in families, very different mindsets across this to, you know, run high leverage, worry, mostly about inflation, buy up a bunch of assets with cheap debt that are hard assets that are gonna protect me from inflation and others that are like, I'm gonna sit on a bunch of cash and just wait. And they're both, and my point here really is they're both sane, they're both well supported by facts. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's, it ultimately becomes, I guess to some one degree personal choice. And then the other one would be time horizon. Because where some of this changes is if I'm an asset owner across cycles, like, I, I know some, some families that by and large, everything they do is in real estate, like mm. 90% of their portfolio.
1: Sure.
0: What's their hold period? Yes, is their hold period. Like they don't, they're, they're why would I sell this asset? Mm. Is they, they have a, an, an indefinite with a bias towards forever is their hold period. Mm. So the day-to-day changes in asset value on these on these properties doesn't matter much to them if they hold cash they hold it because they might deploy it into building a new asset or buying an undervalued one they take advantage of of you know low interest rates whenever they can and lock it up for as long as they can but they're not trying to turn the building they're not trying to if we can squeak out another 60 basis points they don't care right my grandkids are going to own this thing and so that Time, if your time horizon is two years, there's some things you care about that if your time horizon is 22 or 52 years, you're just like, maybe. Exactly. I know I gave you, I gave you a three-minute non-answer. This is a complicated question.
1: Oh, no, that was perfect. Um, I can agree more. Family offices are just trying to preserve capital. And then as far as what you were saying in regards to investing, it's like what Warren Buffett says. He says he buys deals, not cycles. So I definitely appreciate that. But Sonny, before we let you go, I just have two very quick questions. The first is, where do you and Satori see opportunity today? What LPs, what emerging managers, if you guys do any joint ventures at all, should be reaching out to you?
0: So I would say by and large, we have had and will continue to have a pretty aggressive bias towards alternative assets at large. It's like, it doesn't say a ton, I'm like everybody on this call is, is an alts manager things that are idiosyncratic are interesting, right? Cause those opportunities aren't specific for today. That the, the little corner of the market that you found that no one else can see yet that may persist a decade may not have anything to do with the cycle and timing and today and it may, um, but those, those stories where there's real edge and real understanding of, of an end market and that might be in venture and that might be in credit and that might be in equities. So my point here is I don't have a bias to say, well, you know, the, the mezzanine for core real estate is the big, you know, unfound opportunity. Um, it, it, it's a broader lens than that. I will say that there's, I will point out a couple of places where we have seen some, some pretty unique opportunity. One, the, the health and wellness space is absolutely fascinating. The tailwinds there are amazing. Like once somebody starts reading a label on what they eat, everything changes.
1: Sure.
0: Like I remember I used to eat a Taco Bell all the time. I'm like, this tastes great. Mm -hmm. And then one day I became a label reader and it was a bunch of things in a row. And I started going, well, what's in my food? You read it and you're like, this is not food. Well, downstream from that, you can imagine all the different purchases I make and so forth. And and I think they're um, broadly the health and wellness and go outside and, and particularly coming out of COVID right? If not physically, psychologically, everybody was locked in a box. It's like being grounded. Remember when you were a kid and you got grounded, mm-hmm. all you wanted to do when you got ungrounded was to go outside and play. Absolutely. And so the whole world's going outside to play now. Um, and that puts us in our bodies. It puts us in context with each other. It, it has us go camping. It's like sort of all of these things. And so I think there, there will be a lot of opportunity there um, as a thematic thing. The next piece, um, and you know, we've talked about this for a little while. There have been some pockets of CMBS that didn't recover post-COVID. They just didn't. We're like, this makes no sense. Like everything around it kind of moved, and the early stories as well. This, you know, segment of the market's not getting supported by the Fed put it turned out to not be that, and it just, just kind of didn't move. It was really wild, and we're looking at it. We go, we don't understand this. We're going to buy some of it. So we have a we have a manager to actually two that do a lot of work in, in CMBS. And, and I think there will continue to be some opportunity there. Um, it goes back to the same question. Do I want to own an office building in Dallas or Nashville or Austin or Cincinnati? Or do I want to own that same kind of asset in Chicago on the Magic Mile? If you go there and walk around, you'll come to a pretty quick conclusion why the demographic trends are playing out the way they're playing out and if you've got some horizon. Um, So so we think there's some opportunities there in CMBS. And then the the last piece, and I think James is pretty passionate about this, this this sort of value growth rotation, it's coming at some point, Mm -hmm. it must be coming. And we have seen some managers, some of which are on our platform who have a value bias. And usually like if somebody shows up and they go, oh, we got a value bias and blah, blah, blah. You're like, great, I'm about to see a return stream. That's not very exciting but they're going to tell me, but it's going to turn soon because it has to. Right. Um, and soon, who knows how long that could be. There are managers that are, if you're good enough with your value plays to post sort of growthy beta outcomes, mm-hmm. those are very interesting. So we've got a manager that without touching Fang is delivering those kind of results. It's all value. That's amazing. What it tells me is, look, I've got, I've got some, some support there because these are sort of fundamental driven pricing mechanisms in those markets. So I've got a little bit of downside protection. It also says these are good enough managers to actually find real opportunity without touching stuff that could go on forever like this and, and maybe not. Um, so it's, I think that the value bet where, where people are able to actually be deep, deeply understand these different stories we've talked about um, I think there's some real edge there, and we'll see some opportunity over the next five years.
1: Absolutely, we just had the famous professor from Columbia University, Warren Buffett's prodigy, Mr. Bruce Greenwald, and he said the same thing: value is going to come back eventually. I'm, I'm just really curious, though: are you more focused on America, or are you open up to, are you open to emerging markets like Singapore, India, China?
0: Yeah, so I would say we are, by and large, more focused on America in the the bulk of our portfolio, both, both in our alpha business and in our private equity business. It is, I think people underestimate, like the world's different. Like Argentina is not the United States. It doesn't work the way it works here. India doesn't work the way it works here. And you have to go there to go like understand it and, and, and. And so I think in a lot of cases, our lens is that has a place in what we do, but it's probably been a smaller place. And there's some building conversation about there may be some opportunity coming here, right? Those parts of the world have been dragging in some ways. And so I would say, you know, if you were to build a radar and like what's right here, Mm -hmm. the stuff I talked about is like right here. I think the EM one's not far out. You're kind of watching it going, okay, there's going to be opportunity there. How do you answer a question like, how do we not repeat the brick, right? Cause if you remember brick, everything was changing and brick was gonna change the world. And that was everything. And that was where all the growth was coming and it was the hottest thing to own and buy. But now you list off those countries and you're like,
1: Ooh,
0: one out of four. Sure. So, so but I think, I think EM is on our radar, but at the moment um, with some, some hesitation for a bunch of reasons.
1: Wonderful. Okay. Well, I have a feeling, Sonny, you're going to get hit with a lot of messages in your inbox soon. So be prepared for that. And I guess my last question is, what parting advice would you have for entrepreneurs? If you could go back, Sonny, and speak to your younger self, what would be that one or two things that you would say to yourself to give you a leg up?
0: The very first one would be time horizon. Right. And it's time horizon coupled with this too shall pass. Mm. Most businesses have moments of existential crisis. You're not alone. We all stared into the abyss along the way and thought it was over. If this, we're not going to make it. And, and if, you, if you talk to entrepreneurs, you'll find so many stories about the moment when I didn't think we were going to make it. The moment I had to go home and tell my wife, I'm pretty sure it's over. I mean, even if you look at the you know, Tesla and, and SpaceX stories, both of those companies were like, it was clock time, not calendar time that was determining whether or not they were gonna survive or not, and where are we now? When those moments come, remember that conversation about grit. Right. You take a big deep breath and you just keep going.
1: One more step. Yes. That was one of the interesting things I saw in your TED talk. And I highly encourage everyone listening to go check it out. When you were our Army Ranger, and I apologize for not getting into this earlier, you told your battalion, we just need more stuff. And that kind of carried you along your career. And I thought that was amazing.
0: Yeah, there are, there are times when um, as much as we want to talk about long-term time horizon and purpose and all of that, that's not enough. You know, you hear people talk about like visualizing the future when it's hard and think about that but when it gets really hard about all you can visualize is just around the next bend, but can I make it to lunchtime? Can I make it through tomorrow? And that there are some times in real crisis when like your time horizon gets here because psychologically you just can't hold a decade. Mm -hmm. It's too much. And you go, I'll make it here. And then I'm going to see where I am. And that's how I got through ranger school. I didn't keep my eye on, Oh, this is what the, I'm going to visualize being at graduation. i well, it didn't get me yet. And I can make it across the river. I know I can make it across that river and then I'll see where I'm at. And I just a little bit at a time all the way. And then one day you get, I remember the moment when we're walking in the last few miles and the very last day, it was over. And sort you look around and you're like, um, I guess I made it. But it was never this long-term visualization. That was very much right here, right now. I'm going to do the next most important thing to solve the issue or to get where I need to go. And I'm not going to worry about anything else but that.
1: Amazing. Sonny, thank you so much again for coming on our show. This This has been incredible.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you.